So as I already said last night, we last Sunday night we finished looking at the Old Covenant annual calendar, comprised of various annual observances, things that happen each and every year. Tonight we're looking at a couple of observances together, which happen not every year, but every seven years in one case and every fifty years in the other case. And these are the Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee, respectively. Every seven years, the Israelites were to give the land a Sabbath, wherein they did not cultivate the land at all, nor eat what grew of itself, but give the land total rest. Every seven years, you're not supposed to go out in the field and work. The farmers take the year off. Don't do anything out in your field. Then, every 50 years, the Israelites were to observe a year of Jubilee in which, as you heard me read from Leviticus 25, which we're studying tonight, property which had been sold within the last 50 years was returned to its former owner. At what price? No price. Just returned. And... In this same year, the year of Jubilee, Israelites who had sold themselves into servitude were released from their servitude. Again, at what price? At no price. So the year of Jubilee, properties returned, servants are set free at no cost, at no price. We're looking at the Sabbath years together with the year of Jubilee because they're related. Not, not only due to the fact that the year of Jubilee followed seven Sabbath years, but also theologically, as we will see. To begin with, let us note that the Sabbath year required a great deal of trust in God. As uh, John Gill says, by this observance, the Israelites would learn to depend on the providence of God. If you say, Leviticus 25, verse 20, What shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop. Verse 21, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Now, first, I want you to, to think about the heart, the disposition of the heart that the Old Covenant Israelite really ought to maintain in year one, in year two, in year three, in year four, in year five. Which is this. I intend to keep the Sabbath year in year seven. So before year six ever happens, before year seven ever happens, there's five years of sincerely intending to keep the Sabbath year. Obviously, if someone said, well, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Like, hopefully something will happen and I'll be able to wiggle out from it, you know, whatever. But I'm not, I'm, I have no intention of keeping it. And I'm just hoping that something changes before the seventh year. Obviously, that's not really the heart attitude and the disposition that the Lord would require of His people. He wants obedience of, of the heart, 
as well as mere external observance. So when they heard, when this uh, chapter was read to them, and they heard that in the seventh year they're not supposed to work, right there and then, even though that was year one, that would solicit trust in God from them, or it would require trust in God from them in order to say, okay, we'll prepare our hearts in such a way that we will intend to keep the Sabbath year. Then, in the sixth year, they would no doubt observe a bigger crop than normal. But let's say you have let's say you have X amount in your bank account. And the command is you have a surplus, don't work for the next year. Well, that still takes some faith, doesn't it? Because you don't know what a year will bring. So let's say let's say that you even have you know fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or even a hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand saved up, whatever. You don't know what a year brings. Maybe you have medical expenses that eat up 110 of that right there. Right? So even even if you had a bunch stored up in your barn, right, you don't know whether war is going to break out in, in the region. You don't know whether uh, you're going to go in your barn one day and find that mildew has set into all these all this extra produce that you have stored up. You don't know if you're going to find that there's been a, a infestation of insects or whatever else that have destroyed your surplus, whatever. And if you find that that part of the way through the year, what you've stored up is unusable, all of a sudden you're in a serious bind because. Growing crops is not something you can just do like on a Saturday, right? Wake up real early, till the land, throw some seed in, get the hose out, spray it down, go out in the afternoon and, and pluck some ears of corn. It doesn't work that way, right? There, it's a lengthy process. So if part of the way through the year let's say, as, as happened in the days of the judges, let's say part of the way through the year, the Philistines or someone else come in and steal everything you stored up from the sixth year. And there are no crops in the ground. Well, all of a sudden you've got a serious problem because you're months away from even being able to harvest additional crops. Right? So you can see that in years one, two, three, four, five, and year six, and year seven, the keeping of the Sabbath year would require some trust in God. Note that first. Note now that the, the year of Jubilee, in which property sold within the last 50 years was returned to its previous owner, in which those who had gone bankrupt and sold themselves into servitude, in, in order to pay off their debt with labor rather than with money. Uh, note that the year of Jubilee in which these servants were released and in which this property was released, this was an observance which was, based, which was not based on strict justice, but on mercy. If... If land is sold, strictly speaking, 
Why should someone say, well, you've had it long enough, give it back to me now? If someone's gone bankrupt and, and forfeited their autonomy and hired themselves out as uh, it's essentially, essentially a sort of contract worker in which you're not at liberty to determine where you're going to live or to shift employers or whatever else. You have an obligation now to the household into which you have sold yourself into servitude. On what basis, other than purchasing your freedom on, on, on the terms that were acceptable and common in, in that day and age, on what basis could you say, well, look, I've served you long enough now. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm gone. Right? These are not things that people are entitled to go to someone else and demand. You can't, let's say, let's say that your father 39 years ago sold a plot of land in St. George to someone else. Well, you can't now go and say, well, 11 years from now, I want that back. See, you've had it for long enough, right? You can't, you can't just, if you've signed a, a contract, you can't just part of the way through say, well, you know what, I'm now going to be free from this obligation, right? There, these, the principles of the year of Jubilee are not the principles of strict justice. The principles of the year of Jubilee are principles of mercy. Remember, justice is what is owed. What we may demand from someone else, what we are entitled to, or, or what we may not withhold from someone else. Mercy, on the other hand, is freeing someone else from an obligation that they have to us. Doing more than is required. Etc. We, 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 we discussed this at length months ago, so I won't, I won't rehash the principle. But what we need to understand is that this was a merciful observance, rather than an observance that was based in strict justice. Consider whether you, you think the nations around Israel had anything like the year of Jubilee. Was there any other nation on earth in which, at a certain point in time, someone who is profiting from a servant with an obligation to them would just let them go for nothing? Was there, a, was there another nation that would just say, you know what, I'm going to give you back this land that I bought from you? Obviously, what we see in the year of Jubilee is not a normal intuitive way of having dealings with one another in society. It's, it's the kind of institution that would make people say it's not fair. If all of a sudden Prime Minister Motley said, you know what, in the year 2023, it's the year, of, it's going to be a year of Jubilee in Barbados. So anything that has changed hands since 1973, is going to revert back to its original owner. Everybody would be like, what? <laughs> Except those who had gone broke and sold that older land. <laughs> then they'd be pretty happy. Right? But all of a sudden, everybody would start protesting. 
Right? So the Lord weaves in to the Israelites' life. Remember, this is not the annual calendar. But he weaves cycles into the passage of time in the Israelite community. Institutions and observances which required a great deal of trust in him and which required them to exercise grace and mercy towards one another rather than dealing with one another on the basis of strict justice. Now the third thing I want you to see is that the observance of the Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee was critical to the Old Covenant Israelites dwelling in the land securely. Look at verse 18 of Leviticus 25. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. So the Lord says, if you do these things, you will dwell in the land securely. Implicitly, if you don't do these things, you will not dwell in the land securely. Interestingly, we are told in 2 Chronicles 36 that the Israelites were exiled into Babylon until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. Now what this implies is that they didn't keep the Sabbaths. They didn't keep the Sabbath years. They didn't keep the year of Jubilee the way they were supposed to. I mean, it's all well and good to agree to something in principle and on paper, but when the time actually comes to give someone back the land that you've been living on for 50 years, it's a little harder to actually go ahead and put that into practice. So it seems that the Israelites did not actually keep the Sabbath years and did not actually keep the year of Jubilee the way they were supposed to. And lo and behold, they didn't dwell in the land securely. Let me read you an excerpt of 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 to 21, if anyone wants to turn there. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, it's the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into His hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, 
it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So, what's really interesting is that God tells the Israelites in Leviticus 25, I want you to trust me and let, and let your land have a Sabbath every seven years. And I want you to practice mercy towards one another instead of strict justice and release the land and release the servants every 50 years. If you do that, you're going to dwell securely in the land. If you don't do that, you're not going to dwell securely in the land. This is very much related to the blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience, which we've read about recently in our systematic reading of Scripture in Deuteronomy 28. I won't read the whole chapter, but just an excerpt. The chapter begins like this. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of your cattle, etc., etc. Then in verse 15 we read this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, etc., etc. So there is this, this principle woven into the Old Covenant, which is if you obey, you'll be blessed, and if you disobey, you'll be cursed. God says, if you trust me and refrain from working your land in the, the seventh year, and if you show mercy to one another every 50 years and release property and release servants, I'm going to let you stay in the land. But if you don't, then you're not going to stay in the land. Right? You can see, you can see that there's, there's that principle there, right? What I want you to observe next is that the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 25, in verse 9, it says this, Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And it goes on from there. Now, consider the strictness of the principle of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And, and consider this. Did God, or pardon me, did the Israelites deserve 
from God blessings or did they deserve curses? It's not a rhetorical question. Curses. Strictly speaking, the Israelites did not obey properly. No, they couldn't. They couldn't lay claim on their own merit. Lord, we deserve to be blessed according to the stipulations of the old covenant outlined for us in Deuteronomy 28. All right. But it seems here what's what's really fascinating here is that it seems that God was willing to forego prosecuting the Old Covenant Israelites, if I can put it that way, for their breach of the terms of the Old Covenant, if they were willing to trust Him with respect to the Sabbath years and to practice mercy with one another with respect to the year of Jubilee. So even though, strictly speaking, they deserve curses for disobedience, the way it seems in Leviticus 25 is that if the people would trust the Lord and practice mercy to one another such that they would keep the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee, then the Lord would refrain from prosecuting them strictly for the breach of the terms of the Old Covenant. Now I ask you, what kind of people would be able to trust the Lord enough to let the land take a Sabbath on the seventh year and to show mercy to one another. It'd be the type of people that have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, who believe in His benevolence, that He actually will take care of them in the seventh year. It would be the kind of people who, have themse- who are themselves aware that they have received great mercy from the Lord and that it's only fitting and right to extend mercy to others. Consider that connection with the Day of Atonement. Right after the Lord mercifully, symbolically, atones for their sins, all of a sudden now it's like, now y'all go out and give back the land and let the servants go free. Right after they receive mercy through the symbolism of the Day of Atonement and the propitiatory sacrifice of the one Lamb who dies bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the people and the the expiatory sacrifice is sent out into the wilderness taking away the uncleanness from the camp. Right after they symbolically receive mercy from God, right then they're to go out and say, all right, now here's your land back. And let the servants go free. It would be the the kind of people that would be able to go do that. Would be the kind of people that understand and appreciate. That which is symbolized. In the day of atonement. And who see. In the way that God has. Led them and dealt with them. Bringing them out of Egypt. And taking them for his people. And dwelling among them by means of the tabernacle and its, its whole ceremonial system that was associated with it. Those who appreciate the benevolence of God, the goodness of God, the trustworthiness of God, those who recognize that they have been shown mercy, these would be the kind of people that would be able to keep a Sabbath year 
and not go work their ground, and who would be able to let their servants go free and return land to its previous owners. So the Lord, it's like, it's as if the Lord says, if you're that kind of people, then I'm not going to, to prosecute you strictly for the breach of the terms of the Old Covenant. If you, if you are willing to live by trust in me, and if you're willing to embrace a paradigm of grace and mercy, in terms of not only my dealings with you, but your dealings with one another, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with you by grace and mercy. And I'm not going to prosecute you strictly for the breach of the covenant. But if all of a sudden you want to become mistrustful of me and think that you've got to take care of yourself as if there is no God in Israel and work your land in the seventh year and operate on a basis of, of strict justice, I'm not giving back that land because I bought it. I'm not letting this servant go. After all, he's destitute and has sold himself into servitude to me. I'm not letting him go. Then the Lord says, okay, you want to play by those rules? Then I will play by those rules too. I'll prosecute you strictly for the breach of the covenant. Now, you should be connecting some dots with concepts that are taught to us in the New Testament. Consider first Matthew chapter 7 and verse 2 where it says, With the measure you use, it shall be measured to you. In other words, if you want to go around dealing very, very strictly without grace or mercy towards everyone in your life, it's fine, you're entitled to do that. But recognize that God will deal very, very strictly with you without grace and mercy. If you want to operate on a, on a principle of strict justice with everybody around you, fine, you're entitled to do so, but God will operate with a principle of strict justice with respect to you. On the other hand, if you want to go around and be gracious to everybody else, know that God is very willing to be gracious with you. With the measure that you use, it shall be measured to you. And of course, the famous story from Matthew chapter 18, 23 to 35, where a guy owes more money than he could ever realistically repay. And he is forgiven that debt by the king to whom the money is owed. But as soon as he leaves the king's palace, he runs into someone who owes him a fair amount, say maybe a couple thousand dollars or something. And all of a sudden he wants to wring this guy's neck because he can't pay. Well, the king who has forgiven this guy a crazy sum of money that he never could repay is incensed about it and says, how is it that I would forgive you such a large debt and then you leave from here and won't even forgive someone a smaller debt. I believe what we need to take away 
from the institution of the Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee is that it's as if God was teaching the Israelites that there is another way besides straight justice even though the old covenant itself was based on straight justice blessings for obedience curses for disobedience it's as if the Lord was saying there's, there's another way though and a better way I will atone for your sins right the day of atonement and when you leave from observing what I've done for you in the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, I want you now to go and be likewise gracious and merciful to your fellow man. I want you to trust that I am benevolent towards you, that I am good, that I will take care of you, and let your land lie at rest every seventh year. If you will be the kind of people that believe that I am good and that I will take care of you, and if you will trust me, if you will be attentive to the mercy that I have showed you and internalize that and then go practice that same mercy in your dealings with others, then I'm willing to not prosecute you for the breach of the covenant. And I'm willing to continue dealing graciously and mercifully with you and to let you dwell in the land. But if you leave the king's palace and go wring the neck of someone who is a debtor to you, then rest assured that I will prosecute you strictly for the breach of the covenant. And you'll be carried away into exile in Babylon. Though we're not bound by the observance of Sabbath years and Jubilee. We ought to recognize that the same thing that is taught us in Leviticus 25 is taught us in our covenant. Matthew 7, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you claim to have been forgiven such a large debt, then you also need to go out and be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. There are two ways to live. You can operate based on straight justice with everybody around you. But if you do that, be aware that God is going to deal with you on the same basis. Instead, be somebody who recognizes and appreciates the mercy that you have been shown in and through Christ Jesus. Trust that you have been brought out of Egypt and into the promised land. And God who brought you into the land is, is, is well able to make enough grow in the sixth year to get you through the Sabbath year. Trust God. Trust His benevolence toward you. Internalize the mercy that He's shown you. And be someone who moves with trust in God and grace and in mercy in your dealings with man. There is a better way to live than appealing to strict justice with respect to our horizontal relationships and with respect to our vertical relationship. The gospel should make us trusting and merciful people.